0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
2: This week was all about heat, record temperatures in Europe and the United States, concerns whether Europeans can heat their homes this winter, and central banks trying to take the heat out of prices on both sides of the Atlantic. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on the growing divergence among the economies of the United States, Europe and China.
3: They've got an aspect to their problem that we don't have in the United States. This is pushing Europe in the right direction in a dangerous situation.
2: And Brian Moynihan of Bank of America on how we can feel so bad when the economy appears to be doing so well.
4: What they're saying they see versus what they're doing is kind of interesting. That's the Fed's toughest challenge.
2: It may be summer, but temperatures this week were ridiculous, even for mid-July, with records broken in London.
0: I'm pretty, pretty desperate. I mean, there is sweat running down everybody's
2: backs. Wildfires in Spain. We have never been uh, seen that condition on, on the fire, never. It's, it's completely new for us. And misery throughout much of the United States. This climate debate in a very hot America, Washington DC, normal 101, 102 here in a couple uh, days, but it is a serious issue. And if this heat is coming in part from a warming planet, Congress told us this week it isn't going to do much about it leaving it to President Biden to take matters into his own hands. Climate change is an emergency. And in the coming weeks, I'm gonna use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions. While Europe is just as concerned about not having the natural gas it needs come winter because of a threatened Russia cutoff.
4: Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon and therefore Europe needs to be ready.
2: And while the Commission was preparing for natural gas rationing, the European Central Bank moved on a different kind of heat, the heat of inflation. We decided to raise the three key ECB interest rates by 50 basis points and approved the transmission protection instrument. And when it comes to the markets, well, they generated their own kind of heat this week, with the S&P 500 up over 2.5%. That's its best week in a month. And that was after it gave up almost 2% on Friday alone, in part because of disappointing reports from Snap and Twitter. While the Nasdaq was up three and 3.3%, while investors liked bonds as well, with the yield on the 10-year falling from 2.9% down to two and three quarters percent To take us through it all, we welcome now Bob Michael. He's J.P. Morgan Asset Management CIO and head of fixed income, and Aaron Brown, portfolio manager at PIMCO. So, Aaron, let me start with you on equities and those earnings that we had. As I say, Snap and Twitter sort of disappointed. Overall, how are we doing with equities and earnings right now?
5: So the bar was low going into earnings season, but that said, I think there are three main takeaways that we're hearing from the second quarter. You know, the first is that we saw real market excel- acceleration downward in terms of demand trends and a softening really across the broad board. In the second quarter, um, we saw, you know, not just the early consumer cyclicals disappointed to the downside, which we heard in the first quarter, but we're now really starting to see that broaden out to the broader economy. You know, you mentioned the disappointment in earnings that we saw from Snapchat um, on Thursday, but you also saw negative earnings revisions lower from some of the consumer cyclicals, some of the industrials, some of the metals and mining company. And really what you're hearing a lot from corporates right now is that the consumer is is weakening, but you're also starting to see business confidence also weaken. And you have started to see some of those advertiser dollars starting to get shrunk on the back of the fact that the demand environment just doesn't support it. The other, I think, key takeaway that you've started to see in the second quarter earnings season is inflation remains persistent. But what's new is that you're starting to see higher financing costs also start to really bite in terms of corporate profitability. And the interest rate increases that we've seen you know, on the back of the Fed raising rates has really started to hurt corporates in terms of their earnings profitability because it costs more now to finance. And the third, I think, key takeaway this is a real change in trend, is that the dollar strength is also starting to really impact the corporate profitability. We've seen the dollar rally about 6.5% in the second quarter. That shaves about one5 to 2% off of earnings. And you heard from corporates like Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, as well as IBM, all to talk about you know a lower profitability ahead because of the, the higher dollar. And this isn't something that we've heard about really talked about since 2016, so that's a new wrinkle in terms of the outlook for the second half.
2: So, Bob, that was equal time for (laughs) the equity side. What about on the bond side? Let me add one other softening number. We had PMI numbers that came in on Friday
6: that were softer as well. We have a completely different take on corporate America, and it starts with it's priced in. If you look at the start of the year, investment grade corporate bonds yielded somewhere around 2.4 percent. They're now yielding 4.6 percent. You look at high yield, it yielded under 5 percent at the start of the yield. It's now yielding over 8 percent. So there's an awful lot of the bad news that Aaron talked about priced into the market. We look at those yields. And we say this is the time to buy, particularly in high yield where you're being compensated for default rates that can go up to 6%. We look at where we think default rates are going to go. It's a much higher quality high yield bond market. A great discussion on two sides of the house. Aaron
2: Brown and Bob Michael are going to be staying with us. We're going to turn and take a look around the world at investment opportunities in places like China and Europe. That's next on Wall Street Week
4: on Bloomberg. The real reason why we're optimistic is the underlying economic um, momentum is so strong. And um, I think that distinguishes Hong Kong and South China from almost anywhere else in the world at the present time. In your view, then, the, uh, Hong Kong is not going to be- become like the rest of China. The rest of China is going to become like Hong Kong. Is that- That's the way it looks at the moment, yes.
0: <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out Public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
7: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients.
1: Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: That was Louis Ruckheiser talking with Robert Lloyd George 30 years ago on Wall Street Week. Since then, Hong Kong has reverted to China. China has joined the WTO, and the Chinese economy has grown from $427 billion to just about $17.7 trillion. But I have to say, I'm not sure it's because the rest of China has become more like Hong Kong. Still with us are Aaron Brown of PIMCO and Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan. So let's go around the world here a little bit, starting with China, if we could, Bob. Uh, when you look at the credit markets in China, bond markets in China are they attracted to?
6: Yeah, they are. And and China continues to struggle with the zero covid policy and the constant shutdowns. So, it's going to take a lot off of GDP and because of that, we think that GDP will come in somewhere around 3%. You look at the 10-year China government bond, it's yielding about 2.8%. That looks to be pretty good value to us. I think for us one of the bigger discussions we're having is What does Euro-COVID policy mean for recession and inflation? And, And unfortunately, it means stagflation. It means that you're taking out a large area of consumption, but you're still going to have the supply bottlenecks. That's not necessarily good for the rest of the economy.
2: Aaron, what about you? Is China investable right now?
5: Yeah, this is somewhere where Bob and I actually agree. Um, you know, I think that, you know, from a Chinese bond perspective, I think Chinese bonds do offer value, particularly in a global construct. That said, I think the big question mark for China right now is what they're going to do with respect to their currency. You know, I, I believe that their currency is likely going to continue to weaken in a zero COVID policy where... Growth really is handicapped and as a result of that I think that that likely means that it's going to really harbor poorly for the rest of the world. Remember you know historically it's been difficult for emerging market assets to do well in environments where China growth is very weak and particularly if China continues to weaken its currency or allow for its currency to gradually weaken it also means that you won't likely see emerging market strength outside of China. What that Ultimately, means is that it's it's pretty poor for global growth. I think people have been expecting, market ex, um, investors have been expecting that you would likely see some type of recovery in China. You know, particularly um, this year and, and in the back half of this year. I don't think that we're going to get it, which makes, in my mind, Chinese 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 risk assets pretty uninvestable right now.
6: Th- this is where I'm going to disagree with Aaron again. <laughs> we're back on track, Aaron. Okay, <laughs> um, we're, we're looking at the rest of the emerging markets emerging market debt and we think that could be the surprise of the second half of the year upside surprise for the bond market absolutely and if you look at the developed market central banks really when you look at the ecb just starting to raise rates the fed early on and the bank of japan not starting in the emerging market since the start of 2021 30 central banks have raised rates 170 times for a total of 15,000 basis points. Mm -hmm. So those markets have anticipated inflation. They've priced it in. There are high real yields there. People are afraid to go in because of inflation, because of the strong dollar. We think there's an opportunity there. You put together a basket of Brazil, South Africa, and Mexico, you've got a 7.25% yield. All you need is for the dollar to remain stable and not keep going up.
2: All you need, Aaron. All I'm you need is the dollar too. to remain sta- stable. Bob took us, actually, to ECB. What about Europe?
5: Yeah, well, I just want to go back to that point just really briefly. I mean, Bob, earlier you were saying you can get an 8% yield out of high yield. So why would you get a 7% yield out of emerging market assets if it's a lower quality asset with more FX risk on it? I think that in order to be bullish emerging market assets, you need twofold. You need, one, to see a stabilization in global growth. And probably even much more importantly, you need to see inflation stabilize in emerging markets. Unless and until you see EM uh, you know, uh, inflation stabilize, you're going to continue to see those central banks chasing um, and trying to get in control of inflation. And that just means that, you know, likely you're going to see higher rates in emerging markets. So I think it's too early right now to call for a buy in emerging market assets in emerging market bonds with respect to europe you know i think that europe is really challenged right now and that's you know largely as as a result of the fact that they have much higher um, reliance on energy and um, gas from from russia than uh, the rest of the world, and particularly versus the U.S. And so I think that you're going to see a real impairment to uh, European corporates in the second half of the year because of higher energy costs. And I also think that you're going to see a forced um, curtailment of industrial uh, energy usage, which means that corporate profitability in Europe is going to be quite weak. I do think that, you know, based on some of the PMI data that we got over the last 48 hours out of Europe, that we're likely in a recession in the third quarter in Europe at the start of a recession. And you'll likely see that recession um, conditions ensue over the next few quarters. So I I think that Europe is a real bleak spot in terms of the global growth trajectory. So, sir, rebuttal? Yeah, I'm going back to emerging
6: markets. I knew you were. I knew you because were. Because I think there are three sovereigns <laughs> who aren't going to be really happy that they just got compared to below-investment-grade <laughs> U.S. corporates. So let's put that to the side. Europe, yeah, I, I, here I agree with Aaron. That they've got a real problem. It looks like inflation is going to remain structurally high. The ECB is going to do what they can to slow down consumption. Ultimately, we like sovereign debt there, but, but we like Germany. We're not necessarily sold on Italy yet. So we're sticking in the sovereign side. Uh, we think there's some normalization and policy to come from the ECB, but they're not going to get anywhere near as high as, in rates as, as the Federal Reserve.
2: So, Aaron, to put you on the spot, what's the worst problem for Europe right now, uh, the collapse of the government in Italy or the problem that ECB faces, and particularly Russian natural gas?
5: I think energy is by far the number one problem that Europe is facing right now. You know for for Italy specifically, certainly the collapse of the government is a challenge, but I think that the much larger looming risk out there is the curtailment in what's going to be in supply in you know into Europe for natural gas, and what that ultimately is going to mean for demand destruction um, that's necessary to come from it.
2: Okay, the main thing I want to know is, is there a PIMCO versus J.P. Morgan softball game this summer? Because I would like to be there, like to see what respective positions you both play, because it would be a feisty one. But it has been really great having you both on. We really need that kind of uh, constructive disagreement. Thank you so much to Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan Asset Management and Aaron PIMCO. Baron Brown of PIMCO. Up next, we're going to look ahead to next week on Wall Street, and that's on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. recession. It's what we fear and what some tell us is either inevitable.
5: Unfortunately, I think a recession is going to be inevitable.
2: Or much more likely than not. If we're all uh, talking ourselves uh, into recession, uh, and, and being very pessimistic, the, the odds are that we you know we lose faith and, and we go into recession. And we certainly have some of the elements in negative growth for the first quarter and growth that is at best subdued for the second.
3: There's probably close to a 50/50 chance, maybe it's a bit less than that that we've had two negative quarters in a row.
2: But then again, we have employment that we've rarely seen. We simply have a very strong unemployment situation, a very strong labor market that's continuing to fuel uh, consumer spending, keeping the economy moving forward. And twice as many job openings as there are people looking for work. Right now, the labor market is extremely tight and I would say unsustainably hot and strong retail sales.
0: The main measure of consumer goods, people were actually buying fewer
7: goods over the past few months.
2: And the major banks telling us the consumer is strong.
7: They're going out, they're traveling, they're doing things, they're getting dressed up, they're going to weddings, they're going back to the office, uh, they're going out to dinner more.
2: So how can it be that we're heading for a recession when so much of the U.S. economy is still bathed in sunlight? Bank of America has one of the best possible vantage points on the economy overall and on the U.S. consumer in particular. So we took the question of how to reconcile all the conflicting data points to the man at the top, Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan, starting with what he sees in the state of the consumer.
4: I just saw the data for the first few weeks of July. And, you know, at the end of day in, in the, for the first couple weeks of July. The consumers in the aggregate spent across debit cards, credit cards, checks written, Zelle, money out of the AT- cash out of the ATMs, cash it from tellers—all all the different ways they spent it. They spent about nine or nine percent plus more than they spent in the first two weeks of July of 21. Um, the transaction volume grew at six or seven percent, six percent plus. That means people are doing more things, and so the consumer spending is strong. The second thing is the customers have in their accounts more money mid-month of July than they did in, in in June. And so they they continue to build their account balances, especially in the lower wage earning populations we have in our customer base. We serve all these customers. So to give you a sense, the customer that pre-pandemic would have had you know, one to 2,000 average balances in their accounts had an average of 14, now has 7,000 plus in that account. That same customer two and a half years later. The customer had between two and five, averaged 3,500. Come forward two and a half years later, they have 13,000. So there's money in accounts. And by the way, they're not going down. They went up a little around tax refunds. They came down when they spent some tax refunds and that was April, May. And then you saw them start to grow in June and you're seeing it continue in July. So they have money in accounts. The third thing is, are they, borrowing and the answer is we're seeing some growth in our credit cards some growth in our home equity balances uh stabilization our mortgage balances but at the end of the day they have plenty capacity in home equity to borrow they were 30 billion pre-pandemic the loans are now in the low 20s so there's that capacity credit cards were 95 billion pre-pandemic they're now 80 mid 80s moving up there's that capacity plus there's other lines so there's capacity to borrow the home values are still strong so that's good so as you look across all that data you say the consumer's strong Now, when you do a survey of what consumers feel like, they say consumer sentiment's down, and that's because they read about inflation, they hear about inflation. So the answer is, what they're saying they see versus what they're doing is kind of interesting. And then you look at the un- unemployment levels and wage growth, and it's strong. So that's the conundrum. That's the Fed's toughest challenge. You have a strong consumer, and they need to slow down the economy. And that's, that's, a, that's a lot of work. And so we see everything constructive on the consumer side in, in our database. And by the way, the wealthy customers, the same thing, except for frankly, they had to pay more taxes in the second quarter, uh, 50% more by estimates than last year. So therefore, their balances went down, and now they're recovering. So, so, Brian, I think you just
2: put your finger on one of the questions, certainly that's perplexing to me, that uh, a lot of the data indicate the consumer is really strong, but the consumer sentiment is really, really weak. How can it be that good when we feel that bad about it? And I guess the follow-on question that is, can we talk ourselves into a
4: downturn? How much of this is sentiment and how much of this is behavior? Well, a couple of things. So, you know, my experience with consumers across the years, especially on the investment side, which, you know, I I ran for the company before I was CEO for a bunch of years, you, you you could see the stock market trading volume of retail customers, you know, correlate with sentiment. So, you know, when people don't feel good, they don't put as much money in the equity market, and you're seeing a kick back in a little bit now, but, you know, it, that went down a lot. And so, there's, you know, these things do play off each other. So, the sentiment out there plays off of, Stock market levels, house price belief, uh, whether you know, the debate about whether I'm going to have a job, all those things play off. But the actual behavior plays off of really one straightforward thing. Do I have a job and am I getting paid? That was Brian
2: Moynihan, chair and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, we wrap up the week once again with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we are joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, one of the big developments of this week was the European Central Bank, which made an historic move of 50 basis points, also implemented a new emergency policy. What did you make of what they did?
3: Look, I think they had to do it. Uh, Europe's got a serious inflation problem. Yes, a lot of it's coming from the supply side. But if you don't respond, it becomes entrenched and that much more expensive to eradicate. They've got an aspect to their problem that we don't have in the United States uh, coming out of the fact that they're a monetary union rather than just a monetary system. And so if you're going to have to administer substantial shocks to contain inflation, you're going to have to insulate the European economy and the weaker credits in the European economy from that, and that's what they uh, had to do. I think all things uh, considered, uh, they took uh, the right kind of steps, and this is pushing Europe in the right direction in a dangerous situation. I was very sorry to see the political developments uh, in Italy, which are yet another example of one of the great challenges of our times, which is uh, populist leadership and populist politics um, unsettling the prospects for rational policymaking and creating greater challenges in the long run. I strongly suspect that Italy will regret that Mario Draghi did not have a longer run as prime minister and head of government.
2: Well, take those two and put them together, Larry, actually, the politics of Italy on the one hand and the the monetary policy of the ECB, did the ECB try to address some of that with their new policy? It was unclear exactly how it gets implemented to try to keep the spreads on the bonds, for example, between Italy and Germany in check. I
3: mean, here's the ECB's problem, David. It's, uh, you know, to use a phrase from the security area, it's double deterrence. They want, on the one hand, to deter the speculators from speculating against Italy and other periphery uh, countries. That requires a confident sense that that the ECB is going to stand behind them. On the other hand, they don't want to finance unlimited spending, and so they want to put pressure on countries to manage their affairs responsibly. So that points towards an element of conditionality. But the more the conditionality is credible to the countries, the more it's unsettling to the markets. The more confidence you give the markets, the more the countries feel that they don't need to do their part in terms of making painful uh, policy adjustments. So it's a very difficult balance uh, to strike, and I think this was a reasonable move forward in uh, striking uh, that balance, but it's not going to be easy going forwards.
2: One of the other things that we heard from um, Madame Lagarde is something you and I have talked about in conne- conne- connection with the Fed, which is forward guidance. It sounds to me like essentially the ECB saying we're out of the business of gu- forward guidance. We'll take it meeting by meeting.
3: David, except for some quite particular, quite unusual circumstances, I think forward guidance is generally a mistake for central banks. Forward guidance tends to run into the problem that the market doesn't believe it very much, so it's not very impactual. And the central bank takes its own credibility seriously, and it's constrained down the road by the forward guidance that it gave in the past. So, except for very extreme deflationary situations, I think forward guidance is a tool that is better off kept in the closet.
2: Larry, back in the United States, we've got a number of important events coming up next week. We've got uh, a meeting in the FOMC. Uh, we also have a really important potentially data coming out, particularly PCE, core PCE and otherwise, and also the ECI numbers. What are you going to be looking at?
3: Look, I think the most interesting and informative number is going to be the ECI uh, number, David. The wage picture is mixed. Uh, The average hourly earnings data that come out in each employment report have been relatively favorable and benign for the last several months. On the other hand, the last Atlanta Fed report, which looks at the wage changes for particular individuals and therefore controls for composition issues, was really quite alarming. And so there's a divergence between uh, those two reports that is not well understood. And I think we'll get greater clarity on that when we see what happens with uh, the employment cost index. If wage inflation is continuing to accelerate, which is what you would tend to think, given how high vacancies are relative to unemployment, that's going to be a very concerning sign. If somehow, despite everything, wage growth is uh, slowing, that's got to be reassuring to the Fed in terms of the risks of uh, entrenched inflation. So I think that's going to be a very revealing and informative uh, number when it comes. I think at this point, most people kind of have a 75 basis point increase locked in for the Fed. And, I don't think they expect the Fed to make uh, dramatic news with any policy um, announcements. I think the PCE number can be previewed pretty well on the basis of what happened in uh, the CPI. It's likely to look a bit better, but we've still got a very serious slog of inflation ahead of us. For the medium term, uh, a huge amount is going to depend on what happens with uh, commodity prices. Uh, the agreement reached this morning that suggests that Ukrainian wheat may at long last flow to the rest of the world, that was certainly an encouraging uh, sign. Mm. But there are huge uh, overhangs of uncertainty <laughs> surrounding the oil market, and uh While it's not what's currently priced into the forward market, I think we have to recognize that there are real risks of substantial oil
2: spikes. Larry, we're all focused on the Fed as the front line of defense, as it were, against inflation. At the same time, is it only the Fed? Are there things we can do in fiscal policy at this point that can address the inflation issue?
3: Look, fiscal policy makes a big difference. This is not the time for stimulative fiscal policies like continuing moratoriums on student
2: debt relief. Okay, Larry, always such a pleasure to have you with us and a privilege, really. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Stranger Things. Sure, it's a hit series that came to Netflix's rescue in earnings this week.
4: What do you think, Mike? <sighs> it's risky as hell.
2: But it's also a fair description of a lot of what we're all seeing these days. Everything from record heat in Europe.
1: The scorching heat wave tormenting Europe is pushing power systems to the edge. To
2: a slowing economy while consumers keep spending. There's a lot of uncertainty. You guys have been talking about it all day. Higher recession odds, uh, slower growth. To supply chain problems that it just won't go away. Now we see the weak, weak links in the supply chain. But sometimes it seems as if our leaders hope that if they don't tell us the bad news, it will simply take care of itself. Remember back after 9-11 when President George W. Bush told us all we could help in the war on terror by doing more shopping? We cannot let the terrorists achieve the objective of uh, frightening our nation to the point where we don't, uh, where we don't conduct business where people don't shop that's that's their intention or fed chair jay powell telling us more recently that inflation was only transitory long past the point when we knew
4: otherwise we don't expect that those uh, that upward pressure will produce uh, substantially higher prices or that the effects will be persistent we expect that they'll be transitory or temporary.
2: And it doesn't look like we've learned our lesson. We all know that gas prices are way too high, even if they have come down a bit. But when President Biden talks about the problem, he pulls out every trick in the book except the one that's most obvious, just asking us to buy less gas.
4: Today, I'm calling on Congress to suspend the federal gas tax, calling on states to either suspend the state gas tax as
2: well. I'm calling on the industry to refine more oil into gasoline. Or what about coming up with a plan for that BA5 subvariant that could wreak havoc on yet another winter?
3: Clearly, it needs to be taken seriously because the BA5 variant has what we call a transmission advantage over the prior variants.
2: And maybe the biggest one of them all really doing something about climate rather than just talking about it. No president in the future
4: would walk into the White House and undo what is going on around the world. This is bigger than the United States. But this week, maybe we
2: saw the pattern broken, when Europe finally admitted the obvious, that if Russia cuts the natural gas supply, everyone is going to have to cut way back.
4: We have to reduce our gas consumption. I know this is a big ask for the whole of the European Union but it is necessary to, to protect us. Every member state should reuse the use of gas. And our second objective is we provide a safety net for all member states.
2: Maybe other leaders can take a page from the European book so that the rest of us don't have to resort to a super-powered teenager to save the day like the kids of Hawkins in Stranger Things.
7: Chances of success are 20 to 1. Never tell me the odds.
2: That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th,
2: a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.